Welcome to the Into the Fire podcast. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Into the Fire podcast series brought to you by www.intothefire.org.uk. I'm Fergus Dullahan and with just a few days remaining before the Meta Morris Pro Jiu-Jitsu tournament, I speak to Hiron Gracie about why he's returning to the competition scene. I also talk to him about his Keep It Playful concept and how it can make you a better grappler. So lots and lots to talk about in today's podcast. Uh, the main item, as you just heard, is Hiron Gracie's forthcoming match with Andre Garval in the Metamorris Pro, which is happening in just a few days' time, just this weekend. So we'll be discussing that. And the main training concept we'll be discussing off the back of that is Hiron Gracie's uh, concept of keeping it playful within training. So we're going to be analysing that with the help of Hoyler Gracie, BJJ Blackbelt, Eddie Cohn. In addition, as if that wasn't enough, I've also got an interview with London 2012 Olympic silver medalist and my teammate Gemma Gibbons. And she'll be telling you how you get on the British team, what the process is for that, and also giving you some insight into an Olympic training programme. And then last but not least, of course, we have our regular nutritional expert from fightersnutrition.co.uk, Freddie Brown. He'll be coming in to discuss uh, a couple of interesting, quirky little things that we heard Hiron mentioning uh, throughout the, the build-up to this Metamorphose Pro about his pre-fight nutrition. So he's got some interesting things to share with us on that as well. So we've got a lot to get through today and we're pretty much going to jump straight in. But I wanted to give you a little bit of background for those of you who may not have heard of it um, about the Metamorphose Pro event. It's happening this weekend on the 14th of October and you can live stream it wherever you are in the world for $20 over the internet. Um, and it sounds like it's going to be worthwhile. It's a submission-only event, so there's no points, but it features some of the world's top jiu-jitsu practitioners. So we've already mentioned Andre Galvao and Hiron Gracie, but it's also going to feature the likes of Hodger Gracie, Crone Gracie, Kron Gracie, along with people like Jeff Glover, Jean-Jacques Machado, Dean Lister, Shande Hibero, Thavio Souza. So there's going to be a lot of guys that are going to be well worth watching, so I recommend, highly recommend tuning in for it. We haven't seen anything in the world of jiu-jitsu perhaps as professional as this before so that will be worth watching for sure and of course the whole point the whole thing that's interesting people about it is the fact that there's no points you know so this kind of goes back to the very origins or the very the roots if you like of the way uh, Gracie jiu-jitsu was constructed um, you know so particularly I think this is all this is embodied for me in the Andre Galvo and the Heron Gracie fight where you have Hiron Gracie, who's renowned for following the traditional approach uh, to the art, and you've got this uh, absolute, in the nicest possible way, an absolute monster in the shape of uh, Andre Galval, who uh, is, you know, this, this competitive machine. So it'd be very interesting to see if the concepts of jiu-jitsu, uh, as as you know, embodied by Hiron Gracie, can actually be pulled off in competition, in modern competition, against someone. Uh, of Andre Gavar's skill level, so that's very exciting. But on with today's show. First up, we've got our resident nutritionist from fightersnutrition.co.uk, that is of course Freddie Brown, and he's going to be talking us through something that we overheard this week uh, in the build-up to this Metamorphose Pro. Um, we heard Hiron and Halleck Gracie discussing something um, which we wanted to share with you. So here's a quick clip of the audio before we get into analysing it. 
my grandfather would give me a little jar of honey. Right before I compete, he'd say, eat this right here or drink this. And I would just have straight up honey shots. And it tasted good. It was a little, little, a little dry, but um, it was the idea of a little boost. And I don't really know if, if having sweet, having honey before you fight is the best boost. I actually think now having some salt water is better. So I'm going to probably do that. Okay, so I'm joined on the line from London by our nutritional expert, Freddie Brown. So Freddie, we've heard the excerpt from Hiron's audio. What do you think about the notion, first of all, about taking honey as a, a sort of a honey shot, as a boost before fighting? Well, obviously that just um, carries on with current consensus uh, advice on taking carbohydrates uh, before competition. So up until recently, people have been quite confused as to why carbohydrates are so close to competition that theoretically wouldn't have enough time to top up your muscles or your liver glycogen uh, can have an effect, but they can actually exert psychological effects as well, which really translate into performance. So functional MRI studies have shown that certain motivational areas of the brain get switched on, and that can translate a, a performance increase of up to around about 3% in terms of high-intensity sprint. So you're looking, so at, it, sorry, so you're looking at potentially a 3% improvement just for having a quick shot of something like honey? Just, even just swilling it around your mouth. There, there, theoretically, isn't really enough time for it to be topping up your liver glycogen. That You should be doing that uh, when you're recovering from your, from your previous training session. Um, but uh, just swilling carbohydrate around the mouth has been seen by about 3% in terms of high-intensity sprint efforts. Wow, that's amazing. Helio Gracie had it right. But what do we feel... Has Hiron got it right? What do you feel about the salt water? The salt water, now, salt um, helps water retention. So when you sweat, you don't just lose fluids, but you also lose electrolytes, and these are needed for your muscles and your nerves. It has uh, osmotic potential, so it means that uh, it, it holds on to water in the, in, in the cells. So that's why, you know, a lot of sports drinks have a little bit of sodium in them. Yeah. Um, but I can't see it really having a stimulatory effect, and... I'd probably say that would give, like, for most athletes, that would give a bit of a negative effect, like concentrated salt solution, just because, um, it, you know, really increases your perception of how thirsty you are and gives you dry mouth and can make a lot of athletes feel uncomfortable. I wouldn't really advocate that. A pinch of salt in a sports drink kind of thing. Right. Maybe even a combination of honey and some salt in some water, because salt and honey seem to kind of work together. They're synergistic to a certain extent. But you do need to replace salt, and a lot of sports drinks have a certain amount of sodium in them. However, having a concentrated solution of, of, of salt, just salt water on its own, will end up sort of drying many athletes out and you know, perception of thirst and how comfortable you are during competition is you know, very nearly as important as your actual physical status. So um, I think for, for many athletes, they'd find that off-putting and having that amount of kind of salty solution your mouth as well could even dry out your skin and uh, increase the likelihood of cuts right so if you've got a 20 minute long grappling match the salt might be useful but you have to be very careful with the concentration in terms of the psychological exactly. negative effects exactly uh, because salt is needed for, for transport glute 4 glute 5 uh, transporters in the body that move carbohydrate around they're actually symporters um protein channels that rely on salt to make them work. So salt and sugar can have a synergistic effect to some extent. Right, okay. 
So, uh, what would you recommend? What should Hiram be taking, ideally, if he's going to start doing stuff like this? I'd recommend uh, tailoring your own strategy. Don't try anything on fight night, but um, basically work with a performance nutritionist or a, a wise-up coach to, to figure out your own fluid demands. Weigh yourself before and after training, see how much you sweat, and uh, yeah, see if you're a heavy, salty sweater, an individual who loses more fluid and salt than the average Joe. Uh, look at how much you lose during sessions, get to know yourself, know your body, and also get to know what you can actually take, what you can, uh, um, yeah, the, the kind of things you find palatable before competition around training, and then practice that technique. You want to be trying to make sure you don't lose too much weight during the session so that your body is holding on to fluid and you're replacing what you lose, and then practice uh, with different uh, strength salty solutions and different types of carbohydrate to see what your, uh, to see what favors you well. Um, a lot of these uh, drinks do use fructose. That was the idea behind honey, which is a slower-release carbohydrate, giving you a more sustained period of energy. And some fighters find that also gives them less of a carb coma, less of a kind of sugar-induced slump near competition. So try different formulations of glucose and fructose, some with maltodextrin, and practice, practice, practice before fight night when it really makes a difference. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Freddie. You're listening to the Into the Fire podcast with me, Fergus Dullohan. That was our regular nutritionist, Freddie Brown from fightersnutrition.co.uk. If you've got any questions you'd like to put to Freddie, you can ask him via the Into the Fire website on www.intothefire.org.uk, via our Facebook page, which is Facebook forward slash ITF Fight Blog. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter on at ITF Fight Blog. Coming up next, here on Gracie. I don't remember a point of starting Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu always existed. And I think the reason why is because I know that when it came into my life, it came into my life as games, as me playing Jiu-Jitsu games. One day, all of a sudden, I realized that it was actual techniques. And here I am today. going out there to explore, to learn, to keep it playful. He has to go out there and win. He doesn't win. It's like he's got a lot of titles. He's a serious competitor. He's done really well for himself. So he needs to just seal the deal and then finish it. That was a clip from the YouTube promotional video for the Metamorris event this weekend. Uh, on seeing that, I pretty much immediately arranged to talk to Hiron. Um I was just really excited about the whole thing. And I wanted to talk to him about his keep it playful approach to training. And I also wanted to ask him why he was coming back for this particular event. I'm joined on the line all the way from sunny LA by Hiron Gracie. Although it's not sunny at this time of night. Um, how's the weather been over there? All right? The weather over here is very nice. Today was actually um, the morning. The car was a little bit wet this morning. There was like some water on my car. I think it was just a little bit cool, cold last night, but overall it's been great. Oh man, it's, it's been flooding over here in the UK. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us, Hiron. 
Um, I know you're really right. busy training at the moment, so thank you. Um, I'm going to jump straight in because I'm really excited about talking to you and about the uh, MetaMorris Pro that you're competing in, where you'll be fighting against uh, one of the world's leading jiu-jitsu competitors, Andre Galvo. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the event and why you've chosen to, to take part in it. My brother is helping to uh, organize it and find a lot of competitors, you know. My brother, Halleck. So uh, he was asking me for a while. And in general, I don't really care to compete. I, I just realize every day how, you know, the actual competition itself, it doesn't really mean anything besides, like, just a fun game kind of like, you know, playing beach volleyball, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, but but this is not the same kind of competition in the sense that, like, I can't lose by four points. So, therefore, I can, I can only lose if I get arm locked. Yeah. And and the value of competing is, is that exactly, is to, is to see, like, you know, man, how can I lose? You know, like, I, I need to be curious as to what somebody can tap me with. Yeah. And I was talking to um, someone the other day in an interview, and I, there's no doubt that if I competed with Andre Galvão in the world, he would win in points, you know? And so that's and with a, in a 10-minute round with points. Like, that's his game. He's the best in the world at that. Yeah. So I would expect nothing less. I don't play that game, you know? Yeah. I'm not a competitor, but but can I spar with somebody for 20, 30, 40 minutes and not get tapped out? And if they give me a nice opening, can I take it? Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, at the end of the day, when if you do jiu-jitsu, all you have to be looking for is, you know, an opportunity to grow. So this is just an opportunity for me to grow in the sense of let me just feel somebody out who is so, you know, um, how do I say, just such a high-ranked fighter, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a two-time world champion, isn't he, and um, four-time Pan Am champion, so he's he's not, he's no yeah. slouch. Yeah, he's very good, so, yeah, just like, what is he, is he going to do, a choke on me, you know, I'm lost, I'm curious, and then I... And this is like my grandfather would always talk like this. Like, he would just fight people out of curiosity to see, like, what can they do to me? Yeah. Because it's to a certain point where, like, not too many people tap me out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's kind of valuable. And, and you know, worst case scenario is that I get tapped out, which is very likely because everybody makes mistakes, you know, and lowers their elbow too much or lifts up their elbow too much and makes mistakes. And, and then that's, that's, a, that's obviously an option for me to get tapped out. Of course, many people think that I'm going to be killed in the first like four minutes. Yeah. And then many people think that I'm going to kill him in the first four minutes. But the majority are those who are, you know, um, fans of just the normal jiu-jitsu rules, like 10 minutes and points. Yeah. So in their mind, it's like, man, how could he don't possibly beat somebody who's done so good for himself and I completely understand that and you know those most of those people don't really understand jiu-jitsu 
and they're not really thinking about the circumstances because this tournament, like we said, it has no point. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know who the last person, Andre Galvon, who did he tap out last? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Do, do you know? I don't know. No, I don't know. His, his last big submission. I saw him tap Eduardo Tellis, cool little uh, submission, but I don't know his last big submission that he had, like a yeah. nice one. And he, you know, I myself haven't had too many because I haven't been on the circuit of competing. But nonetheless, what, what we would like would be a, to have a tournament with no time at all. Yeah. Now, many people would say that's really boring, and many would say that it'd be great. But for the purpose of being able to go home on Sunday night after the show, we're going to have time limits. And 20 minutes, you know, it's a pretty good amount of time to at least establish that either A, I can't tap him, or B, he can't tap me. And, you know, just kind of have an idea that if anything, it's somewhat of an equal game in the level of offense and defense. Yeah. I was going to say, I think if anyone, if they're under underestimating your chances, it's a, it's a, a bit silly because clearly you have competed in the past. Like, you beat Jeff Monson, and, and he's a big guy and a serious competitor. And also, I mean, for Andre as well, he's used to competing for 10 minutes, so a 20-minute effort is very different in terms of his energy systems and, uh, you know, his cardio and his training is himself as well. It's a, it's a change for him too, so... Um, you know that it's a bit silly to underrate your chances. I think, um, but do you? I don't want to um, put words in your mouth at all. But when we when we previously spoke a couple of years ago in uh, in Dublin, when I, I interviewed you for uh, Martial Arts Illustrated magazine, you left me with the impression that you don't enjoy you you enjoy competing and it's fine as you said, like as a game, but that you feel that it's um, it's not the full picture of jiu-jitsu. And in a way, it's it's a distorting the art a little bit. Is that right to think that? Well, because what happens is when you have competition where you have points and time, you, you get competitors, you get athletes that are so powerful and so explosive that they're able to just stay off their back and kind of keep you on your back and they don't really impose any threats and they just kind of maintain dominant position and then time runs out they win by six points or four points and that's great but the tricky thing is when you train like that you, you don't really dissect jiu-jitsu from all angles you know yeah meaning like meaning when you're on the defensive when you're on the bottom and, and, and obviously, like, many of these really top-level guys, they paid their dues, you know, and they were on the bottom throughout their blue belts and purple belts. And as they got more advanced, you know, they became the guys that pretty much dominate everybody. Yeah. So I don't really mean it for them because they're already the best in the world for a reason. Yeah. But I, I more mean it for, like, a new student who comes in as a blue belt you know, or they, they're a white belt, they get a blue belt a year later. And when that student starts competing, that student starts building this idea that no matter what, they don't want to lay on their back. They never want to let anybody side mount them or mount them or, you know, it's just, they don't want to let somebody pass their guard. Yeah. And that's okay if your plan is to enter 
these tournaments that those are the rules. But if you want to play jiu-jitsu, you know, to help you become more comfortable in your own skin, you know, to be more comfortable in street fighting and just to understand what you're capable of to a different level, there's tremendous value in investing in the inferior position, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not uncommon for me to let anybody in the world mount me and side mount me. Now, obviously, you don't really want to do that too much in the competition. Yeah. But, like, in practice, it's cool to do that one day a week. Like, right. let everybody achieve every most dominant position on you. Yeah. And that's why I always say we need to keep it playful. That's the keep it playful approach of not being, you know, invest one day a week in this idea of letting everybody attack you. Because invest that one day for your future. So when you're 52 years old, you have the ability to play off your back and be on the mat for 10 extra years because you can be comfortable on your back and not be stressed out that you don't meet your expectation of being able to always be on top of your training partners. That's uh, very interesting. As I remember when we talked about this before, when, uh, and I, when we met in Dublin, I was really fortunate, really lucky to get a, a chance to spar with you. And um, just so people have a bit of a background, I mean, I have 27 years of judo training and uh, I'm the Commonwealth silver medalist, so I'm not a blue button jiu-jitsu, so I'm not bad. But uh, my, I realized I learned a lot sparring with you because you, you uh, pulled me on top of you into mount. And at that point, I suddenly realized that I didn't really know what to do when I got there. I realized that my whole game had been passing the guard and achieving a mount. And that's really what I'd spent my time doing, ensuring that I'd get past people, pin them down, get on top. And then I realized when I was fighting you that once, I, once you just gave it to me, almost my whole game had been destroyed I, I i didn't know what to do next like my submissions were really basic my movement was really wrong and uh it was it was really insightful actually when for me as well when you did that um so i guess yeah. i guess that's one of the reasons you do it too as well oh i do it for my students is that what you're saying yeah absolutely because the thing is i know that everybody quits jujitsu you know yeah jiu-jitsu is like a very very normal thing and the reason why people quit is what I'm coming to realize and my opinion on that is that when you start training you, you naturally you know you get beat up for a while but then they reach the point where you start to you know you're able to control people you're able to Pat people out, pass people guard, sweep people, and then a day comes around where you no longer meet your own expectations. You you can't do what you're able to do for the last four years. Right. You can't sweep those three, those three guys anymore. So then you start telling yourself that this game is no longer for you, and that you're too small, too big, too fast, too slow. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Whatever, too weak too strong, too muscular, too stiff. You start giving those excuses, and then you start canceling yourself out, and you stop training. But yeah. if if you have this whole, like, ability to keep it playful and let people side mount you and mount you, 
and kind of don't worry so much about winning or losing. Worry more about just observing what your partner does and having fun. You will not, you know, let yourself down so easily because you're not expecting so much from yourself. Right. Like me, for example, I don't expect to go in there and beat up Andre Galvan. It's not what I expect. What's your approach to this then? Are you expecting to survive? And... No, I'm expecting. Well, I'm expecting just to just to learn, just to watch him, and and see what he has to offer. And then a, I'm gonna say, man, he's unbelievable. He's extremely dangerous, and I felt a lot of threat. And it feels like I'm fine with you know Henner or Crone. Yeah. And that's how it, who it feels like. Or I'm going to say, yeah, you know, he's really good, but maybe 20 minutes is not for him. But all respect to him, and he's good at what he does, which yeah. is 10 minutes. Right. See what I'm saying? Or, he, or he's very good at adapting, and he prepared very well for a 20-minute match. Yeah. Or I'm curious to see him in an hour-long match. Right. You know, as far for an hour. Like, just, you know, at the end of the day, I just want to learn a little something. Right, and, right. And, you know... Like, because does it really matter? Does it really matter if I win or lose? Um, n- not for me. <laughs> Maybe. But does it really matter for anybody, though? No, I suppose not. No. Does it, does it really matter for me? Like, in the grand scheme of things, does it really matter if Hajar, who's fighting the, the main event, if he wins or loses, does it really, really matter? No, of course not. Now, one could say, yeah, if you lose, he might not get some sponsorship money. You know, you might not get an extra $2,000 a month from this sponsor, or they might stop sending you, you know, acai, whatever. But does that really matter? Like, in the grand scheme of things, what really matters? What really matters is that you compete and that when you walk away, whether you win or lose, you're not like beating yourself up for the next six months or even the next six days that it's not stressing you out. What really matters is that, you know, you just kind of have fun and think about the things that kind of do matter in the world, that you're healthy, that's nice to be healthy, that you have family and friends that you want to hang out with. Like how many people train jujitsu so much that they neglect some relationships? Right, that happens. Me, 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 he don't. I hang out with jujitsu students more than some people who I know need me more. I'm guilty of that. So I stop sometimes and I'm like, man, like, why am I training, teaching and training so much? I need to go hang out with what's his name over there. Because this guy is like upside down. His life is completely upside down. And I could be a good, you know, example for that person. Yeah. But yet, I allow jiu-jitsu to control me, you know? That's because it's my game. It's what I'm good at. So just in general, like, students who train at a martial arts school, like, why do you want to have such a good arm lock? Why try so hard? Why be so good? For what? It's the uh, self-development, isn't it? Self-development aspect. Well, it's self-development, but... Don't try to self-develop only in one thing, which is jujitsu. Like, how often do you hang out with your mom and eat lunch with your mom? I haven't even seen my mom for a month and a half. Right. Now, yeah. am I okay with that? Yes. 
does hanging out with my mom matter more than competing in the Metamoris? Of course. Yeah. But I'm not doing it, though. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do, yeah. It's just because I'm being run by my ego. Right. That's why. Yeah. I'm not I'm not really thinking of, like, you know, stepping out of the, the ego and looking at the situation and realizing that, you know, hanging out with my mom or one of my cousins or whatever is 20 times more important for the inner journey, for my inner journey versus my outer journey, which is to build a name for myself, make money, be successful. That's the outer journey. Yeah. And most of the world succeeds in the outer journey, but they fail in the inner journey. Yeah. So, yeah, that's... Me, when I'm, I am I, right now in the inner journey, like I'm okay, but I am still being run by the outer journey and I'm trying to get more Twitter followers. You know what I'm saying? Like who cares about that? Yeah, right. But I catch myself caring about it. You see the, the, at least I'm reminding myself every day about how so many things mean nothing, but yet you, we allow them to dominate you know, our time and our energy. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. How has your training changed? How much extra time have you had to put in and what have you been doing to, to get ready compared to your normal day? I mean, I'm doing a lot of 20-minute rounds now. Right. <laughs> Guess you would do. a lot of sparring. I mean, the best way to get good at jiu-jitsu is to do jiu-jitsu. Right. Who who, so, are you, who are you sparring with? Oh man, like just this last um, my last training was with my cousin Chrome. Right. And then a lot with I trained with Henner and Holly today. I trained with Chrome yesterday. Chrome tomorrow, and then um, I trained with Shanji, uh, Hiberto. Yeah. On um, on Monday also, and then Kevin Casey. Is a friend who's fighting Dean Lister. That's right. But he might actually um, be in the Ultimate Fighter show. We're not sure. So hmm. he's looking at possibly not doing it. I was wondering, do you ever train with Hodja? Because he's a long way away, isn't he? Based in London. And... I have not. I was not able to train with Hodja, no. One, one day I'm sure I will. I just haven't had, you know, the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, but, yeah, it's very far away. But well, no, for sure it'll happen one day. So, um, just two final questions. The only thing you got to keep it playful that I was wondering about was when when do you train to take it all? Because you say sometimes you have to, but how often should I be keeping it playful and how often should I be, like, I don't know, snarling and taking it all? Um, well, it depends on who you are. Like, obviously, some people are, you know... 42 years old, they've been training for six years and they're only able to train three days a week. They can keep it playful every day. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But then you have somebody who is, you know, 21 years old, doesn't need to keep it playful, but if they do, it will allow them to build even more comfort in these inferior positions therefore investing in their future. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to tell somebody who's 21 to, like, let people mount you and tap you out right. when you are the superstar phenom of the academy, you know? Yeah. But if that's up to you, I, I mean, I would say minimum one day a week. Yeah. You got to learn how to do that. Now, most black belts that I know, they know how to do that 
very easily. Not necessarily against other black belts, but against other brown belts and purple belts, you know? Yeah. But the impressive part is when somebody is like a blue belt and they let somebody side mount them and mount them. Yeah. Because they're, they're, they're open to the idea of being beat and they really want to see, like, and they want to observe and break down how they are beat. Like, they're almost willing to let it happen for the purpose of the study. Yeah, to stop it happening again. Yeah, they're they're in this pursuit to, like, learn the patterns of movement that their training partner is taking. Well, listen, um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because I know it's late in the States now. But thank you so much for, for giving us your time. And good luck. I'm really excited about watching it all. So uh, good luck with yeah. everything else. Thank you so much. Brilliant. And we'll talk soon. That was here on Gracie, and you're listening to the Into the Fire podcast. Coming up next, we'll be discussing why sometimes it can be a good thing for you to be tapping. To analyse that, we've got BJJ Black Belt Eddie Cohn from London. Don't forget you can follow Into the Fire on Twitter on at ITF Fight Blog. You can also follow my personal Twitter account, which is at Fergus Rua. That's Fergus R-U-A. So first up, in this idea of why it might be good to be tapping during training, we're going to have a quick listen to what Hiron has to say about the subject. The best thing anyone can do for me is to tap me out. And that's exactly one of the values of Henner. That's exactly what Henner does for me. The more I tap out, the more unbeatable I am. So again, that was taken from the Metamorris Pro YouTube video. And what a paradox. Tapping out makes Hiron better. Well, to discuss that, I brought in BJJ Black Belt Eddie Cohn from ekbjj.com. I've been interviewing him for a piece I'm researching for Fighting Fit magazine in the UK. And right at the end of the interview, I asked him about his, his feelings on the Hiron Gracie fight and on this issue of tapping out. So a really final question, uh, just to talk to you about something you discussed on a uh, YouTube documentary I saw on your website, um, yeah. which was about the importance of tapping out as, yeah, a, as, totally. a, as a tool for learning. How, how would you describe that? Man, tapping out is the best thing that can happen to you. Academy. It's the, it's the greatest thing that can happen because when you tap, you learn, you know? Yeah. Um, a lot of people won't accept that. They say, oh, you know, if I tap is a sign of weakness, Listen, all of us, me, you, all of the guys in the academies today, we didn't walk in the academy as a white belt. You know, we, uh, as a black belt, sorry. We, we walked in with no, no knowledge whatsoever. Everybody, every single one of us. Yeah. And when we got tapped back then, we had no ego, you know. It was like, okay, he's new, I'm learning this. This is what happens, you know. Yeah. But then as you develop and you get the belts, and you make friends in the academy, and this ego training comes into it. It's like, oh, you can't tap to that guy, you know, or whatever. And the amount of injuries that people have when they get injured and they uh, they don't come back to training, they go against the art, they say we're bullies, we do this, we do that. When you spar with someone for, on the mat for 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 2 minutes, and you tap them, or they tap you, that's the greatest thing that can happen because it shows weakness in your game. It shows that they were better than you at that point 
And it's a great way to figure out how. How did that happen? You know, rewind, go back, have a look at it and see how it happened. Rather than, uh, you know, go and sulk for like a year or whatever about it or don't train with that guy because he taps you. It just breeds negativity into your game and you don't grow as much. And that as opposed to say, like Hiron was talking to me about um, his new concept, well, not new concept, but his um, new branding of the concept, if you like, of keeping it playful. And he was saying, you know, about how... um, you don't want to end up in a position where you end up stalling during your training as opposed to exploring. Yes. Everyone has a different mindset. I agree with what he's saying. Um, I agree that we should open ourselves up to uh, being attacked, you know, on the mats, because that way we can build the defensive elements in. You can you can be a great kind of survival artist. Yeah. From white to blue is your survival time, you know? You have to spend a year being being everyone else's kind of meat, being tapped, and also learning and, and applying your survival uh, uh, tactics. I have guys that come in my academy who, um, you know, they love the flying triangle, this and that, and you put them in the guard and they're stuck. They, they stay there. You get them on their back, they're stuck, you know? Yeah. Um, because the fundamentals and the basics that should be being taught are not being taught anymore. So we're producing great guys with... 50-50 guards and you know all these weird stuff and but they can't pass the guard they can't uh, they can't maintain the mount they can't escape from underneath a, a bigger opponent or they can't escape someone who's got the back of their hook, the hooks in their back right. you know so it's a real loss and I'm really sad about that that happens you know is that uh, a result of the competition uh, emphasis do you think um, it sounds like I'm bashing competitors and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm really not. I'm all for that. You know, I've competed, you know, I've done some, some of won, some I've lost, you know, it's, uh, I don't take competition seriously, you know? Yeah. I think um, that's, the, that's one of the differences, isn't it? Really? Is it... Yeah, for sure. If you, if you like uh, one of these high level guys, you know, this is why the, the Meta Morris uh, fight with Hiron and, uh, Galvo is so interesting just for me as a spectator. Yeah. Um, because it's like. You have a guy, Andre Galvo, who's top of the food chain. This guy is a savage. You know, he will, he's world champion countless times, you know. Yeah. He's proved that he's sport jiu-jitsu and his MMA is very effective. Yeah. But now he's coming up against a guy who not only preaches, but actually delivers Gracie jiu-jitsu in its purest form, if you like. Yeah. With the self-defense elements and with the, the mindset that the Grandmaster Elio Gracie put in, which was... If you, the guy doesn't beat you, if and and you survive, then it's a win for you. If he's bigger, you know. Yeah. And and to have um and to see this match for me, I'm so intrigued about it because if I said this before, if Hiron beats this guy, if he does not submit Hiron Gracie, man, that says a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he should be able to do that. That's right. Now, if Hiron subs him, he's gonna go nuts. You know. Yeah, yeah, the world's going to get crazy. Yeah, it could, you know. So I can see the jiu-jitsu, sport jiu-jitsu guys all on Andre Garvo's back saying, man, yeah, you got to do this, blah, blah, blah. And Hidon's been real quiet. He's just going about, there's no pressure on Hidon whatsoever, zero. I know that 100% from knowing those guys. And they are, you yeah. know? The pressure's not with those guys. Hidon doesn't have to submit him. Hidon just has to survive. And that's what they're best at. It's like... <laughs> They are, that's exactly what they do. They will survive. Yeah. You know? Um, And so that that match really, really intrigues me. And as far as the the tapping goes, that's a philosophy that when people come into the academy, you've got to instill that in them. 
from day one. I have monsters in my academy, and they cannot believe it when they get tapped by someone my size. It just doesn't compute with their brain, you know? Yeah, yeah. That was Eddie Cohn. Anyone interested in training with Eddie in the London area should contact him via his website, which is ekbjj.com. Now, straight into the interview with Olympic silver medalist Gemma Gibbons. We've just about got time for it. So I hope you've enjoyed today's show, and I hope you enjoy this following interview. So uh, I'll start by congratulating you again. Well done. Congratulations on the Olympic silver. Thank you very much. That was amazing. Um, Absolutely amazing. How did it feel? Um, It kind of, I don't think it sort of sunk in yet still. Um, Sort of everyone congratulating me and saying well done and stuff. Like it's it's amazing and it feels great. But, I don't know, before I ever fought in the Olympics, I thought if, like, I ever won an Olympic medal, then, like, it would be, I don't know, it would feel like I've done something absolutely amazing. And at the moment, it just feels like, I don't know, I've won the Kent International or something. It doesn't really feel like I sort of thought it would feel, but I think that's because it's, been such a crazy whirlwind that I haven't actually, I mean, I haven't even watched my fights back yet. Really? I haven't really had, like, two seconds to myself to sort of sit down and actually think about what I've achieved. So I think it will definitely settle in. Um, but at the moment, yeah, it just it kind of just feels normal. No, that's crazy. So you, I guess you have been really busy. What have you, what have you been getting up to? Um, just sort of had, like, loads of media and... A couple of appearances as well, but we went over to Nino, over to BBC Five um, Radio Studio, and we did like a, I think it was half hour, an hour sort of slot on there, and just lots of things like that. So it's yeah, it's been sort of non-stop really. Well, your fights were amazing. If you since you haven't seen them back, they're really amazing. <laughs> what, Thank you. What made what impressed me personally was that you um, seem to just do the same judo you do like all the time like you didn't seem to if anything you stepped up but you didn't seem to be overwhelmed at all you just went out and you were like Gemma that's always Gemma always attacking and going yeah I don't know I think um, obviously I wasn't a middle chance really a high middle chance anyway um, fighting at the right with the bar first Olympic Games I, sort of, I didn't have anything to lose so I sort of I hadn't looked at who I might have third or fourth or fifth I just sort of took one fight at a time and just focused on trying to get trying to win that fight, and then once I won that one, then looked towards the next fight and thought sort of thought about what I needed to do in that fight, um, and sort of I think that really helped because I think I might have become overwhelmed a bit if I'd sort of tried to take on the whole day at once. But I think it really helped sort of just taking each fight individually. Yeah, and you had some pretty tough opponents, didn't you? Who did you have? You had like world champions and Olympic medalists in your opening. Yeah, I had like current world champion for fight. Um, third fight I had the world champion from 2009 I think it is the second fight was the number 6 seed in the world um, even my first fight she was number 22 seed in the world and I was number 42 so even that was quite a big jump and then obviously my final fight was against Kayla who's um, world champion from two years ago and now Olympic champion so it was there wasn't any sort of easy fights, but I don't think any Olympic Games are going to get easy fights. So, no. but it, yeah, it, it was pretty tough. But even from you, I mean, it's just, I mean, you just came back from shoulder surgery, didn't you? Like it was touch and go. Yeah, not not fit. just. I came back um, 
at the end of last year. So, yeah, it's not been long that I've been back, but it, it's been a fair while. Yeah, that was um, quite amazing, because when I saw you out for surgery, I thought that that was it, you weren't going to get selected, and instead you came back, moved up away, and got a silver. Amazing. Yeah, I think there's been, throughout the qualification period, there's been times where I thought, I'm definitely going, and then there's been other times when I thought, I haven't got a health open chance of going, and it's sort of alternated between that quite a few times in two year period. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, was, it was really good just to be able to get selected, and then obviously to win the medal, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it is amazing. Well, I wanted to talk a bit more about selection later, but to start with, how did you, um, how did you first get into judo? How did you begin? Um, my mum took me along when I was six years old. Six years old? Six years old. Uh, oh, God. Six years old. <laughs> um, and, yeah, her friend's kids did judo at the local club, so that's how she heard about it. And, yeah, she just took me along, and then judo's been in my life ever since. Mm-hmm. I can't really remember not doing judo. Right. And when did you realise you first had a real talent for it? Um, I don't know. I don't think... As a kid, you really sort of realise that you do or you don't have a talent. You're a young kid, you do judo, you get taken along, you do it every week. And, well, for me, I just, I wanted to win. And um, you begin to win and then you sort of look up to the sort of heroes in your sport and you think, oh, I want to be like that. So the biggest thing in judo it's the Olympics, that's the biggest competition. So you grow up thinking, oh, at least I did. Grow up, grow up thinking, I want to be an Olympian. I want to, I want to get an Olympic medal. Yeah. Um, and you did. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, yeah. So maybe even as young as eight or nine, when I first started doing competitions and pretty much winning them all when I was younger. Even then, I think I knew that I, this is what I wanted to do, but. I'm sure that pretty much all eight-year-olds think that as well. So yeah. I think maybe it really sort of began when I first got onto the junior, onto the cadet squad, sorry, onto the Great Britain squad when I was 11 or 12. Because then that's your first time in the Great Britain squad and you can sort of see how you could possibly get there. Yeah, so how, for people who don't know, people who are outside the system, how do how do athletes make it onto the British national team? Like if there's a young, hopeful fighter out there, how do they do What's the process? Uh, well, I know it's changed um, throughout the years, but um, I think it's still the case now as when, when I was getting onto the cadet squad and the junior squad that you um, you turn up for the national championship um, and at cadet level they're age-banded to the two-year sort of age block and basically the top four, sort of four medalists, from that competition, then get on to the cadet squad, or if it's the junior national trials, the junior squad, or if it's the senior national trials, the senior squad. Um, but in the last couple of years, they've just brought out, um, it's not for the cadets, but for juniors and seniors, where you have to sort of qualify for the national championships, and you do that through all of the sort of Great Britain ranking events throughout the year. Um, so like the Welsh Open, the Irish Open, the English Open, the Scottish Open, um, the British Closed and the British Open. Um, and there might be some other smaller events as well. Okay, and I think you have to well. maybe get into the top eight, finish in the top eight in the ranking to then get selected for the Nationals, which is every year. And yeah, the top four make the team. So do they only, these days, because I haven't entered a close for quite a few years, do they only, yet, do they only allow eight competitors in? 
Um, yeah, usually. So, for example, if um, someone who's number one or number two in the country and has been going abroad all the time to fight in World Cups, Grand Slams, Europeans and stuff, and they haven't been able to get to any of these um, GB Open events yeah. because they've been abroad, so that therefore they haven't got any points, then sometimes they get given wild cards yeah. so they can still compete in the trials and the same if someone's a top player but they've been out injured haven't been able to fight in any of those tournaments again they might be given a wild card so you can sometimes there'll be more than eight in a group right um but it, it just sort of depends really i was gonna say because eight in a group if you've made it in you've only got to win a couple to make it onto the national team but if there's more yeah i think it's done in it's done in pools first so um you'll have like three fights in your pools and then hopefully that'll get you through to the last four and then obviously you'll have another couple of fights so you still actually have quite a lot of fights yeah yeah that's right i recall i remember being beaten up all day and then not <laughs> getting, and then not getting there <laughs> okay so um when you first made it into the setup what did you do what's what's going full-time like some people think about going full-time and they want to go full-time what's it what's it really like um well i think i was Maybe 19 when I went full time for the first time. I went to Bath Uni. Yeah. Um, and the first year, to be honest, it was like sort of my first time away from home. I was doing uni and judo, but I sort of drifted off a bit and didn't really give my most to either. Um, got into the uni sort of lifestyle a bit too much. Not so much going out and drinking, just... I don't know if I became lazy or because it was all so new. It was sort of scary and when you put your head in the sand and then you sort of don't deal with it. It gets worse and worse and worse. One day, just sort of snapped out of it and began, like, really trying to do my best and everything, and that was in uni and in training as well. Um, and, yeah, that year when I sort of wasn't doing much, I could never even see me finishing uni or getting into an Olympic Games, and now I've finished uni, got first in my degree, and I'm an Olympic medalist, so things definitely turned around, but I think that was, it was quite hard when I first went, um, but I think the support of my friends who were at Bath as well, like Shiv and Charlotte, um, I really sort of managed with their help to turn it around, and then, yeah, then, then I, once you try hard at something and it's actually really enjoyable and I really enjoyed my time at Bath um, and then obviously I finished my degree so I left Bath and went to the British Youth Performance Institute in Dartford and again didn't really want to go at the beginning because I don't know on sort of like things the way they are and if I like something I don't really like change um, and I was happy at Bath and I didn't really want to leave but sort of for different reasons had to um, but then again within four or five months of being there sort of got into it and, and really enjoyed being there That um, leads me really nicely on to talking about the BJPI because um, we, we met in Bath didn't we? that's where we first started training together in fact that's, yeah. that was the same year I went full time as well um, oh okay yeah it was uh, I was like really old <laughs> starting <laughs> <laughs> I'd gone all the way through uni before I even uh, got my black belt, so I was a late starter. Um, well, well, you've done well there. Thank you very much. Well, that's, you're an Olympic silver medalist now telling me that, rather than just Gemma. So that's 
But, uh, yeah, so moving to the BJPI, I just wanted to talk about, I mean, most people have never seen it. Um, talk us through what it's like. It's, I mean, the, the mat size is epic, isn't it? It's really huge. The facility is absolutely amazing. The, the Bojo is probably, I would say, the best Bojo in Great Britain. Yeah. Um, it's really nice, modern, clean. The mat size is a really good size. You could hold, easily hold a competition there, and you've got two um, full competition size mat areas. Um, of big plasma screens on the wall, so that if you want to do video analysis feedback while you're on the mat, that's possible. Um, yeah, it's 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 really good facilities. I think probably yeah, definitely the best in Great Britain. I think so. I mean, I think mat size is probably as big as a basketball court, isn't it? To put it in perspective, people yeah, it's it's really really good size. Yeah, really big. And then I remember going in there one day and. Uh, I just um I can't remember what, why I was there. I was probably building up for a competition or something, but I walked in and uh like I think yours, Colin Oates and Siobhan O'Neill's and a few other people, their heart rates were being projected onto a wall and they were like the pace setters and we all had to like maintain kind of the same work rate as them because they were their their heart rates were being monitored. And I just thought, Oh my god, this is so technical <laughs> Yeah. Mm. Um, no, they've definitely got all the sort of yeah sort of mob cons and stuff that you need there. So, um, moving on to training specifically then, because judo is a very complex sport. What, what uh, I've got, and I've pulled up a BJPI uh, program here, and I was just wondering, what do judo players have to do um, for training? What's, in terms of strength and conditioning, what kind of things do judo could do? very much for, for individual to individual. I mean, some people are actually trying to put on weight, so they'll be doing sort of maybe hypertrophy sessions in the gym, and there's other people that are trying to put on as little weight as possible because they're actually above their weight category and need to diet down. So maybe they'll focus more on sort of speed weights and spend a lot of time doing CD. Yeah. Um, yeah, it really, really depends on... on the individual it's based on. And how many um, hours a week do like the British team train? Uh, sort of an average week for me would be Monday an hour and a half in the morning technique. But every day, Monday to Friday, an hour and a half to two hours, depending on who's taking the session and what the session's based on, yeah. um, would be an hour and a half to two hours. Then in the afternoon, um, for me again, because I'm trying to put on weight at the minute, because obviously I'm sit very low in my weight category, it would be a weight session or a weight circuit, yeah. which again will be an hour and a half to two hours. If it's weights, sometimes maybe two and a half to three hours, because yeah. um, some of my weight sessions are pretty long. Um, and then in the evening, on two, two to three nights a week, we'd have randori, which again, an hour and a half to two hour session of randori. Um, and then in between all of those, we'll obviously have physio, um, massage, video analysis, um, sort of little sessions like that, which last about half an hour, and you'll have quite a few of those a week. So, yeah. Um, so we're sort of averaging about six hours a day of training. Yeah, average about six hours a day. Yeah, it's quite crazy, isn't it? Good. Yeah, it's, it's quite busy because obviously you need your rest as well in between sessions to make sure you get the most out of the next session. Yeah, it's funny because um, having when I stepped up to do it, I found it like phenomenally. I just just 
incredible volume of training. And then when I step back away from it, um, and now I train like, you know, if I train, if I go for a morning jog and hit the gym or go to judo in the evening, I think I'm having a light day. And no, you know, other people are training twice, three times a week, and I think they're training hard. It's quite funny. Yeah, I think it's just what you get used to, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, British judo, we did really well, actually, in the end, although it was looking quite touch and go during it. Um, but we came up with two medals, which is above the expectations. So what what yeah. do we what do we do next? What's uh, what should we be looking for? And not just necessarily elite, but what does British judo need to do in general now? Do you think? Um, I think like obviously the results that me and Karina have got. Um, I think British judo just need to make sure that they utilise these results and and make the most of it. We haven't had an Olympic medal in the last twelve years, and now we've got two. Yeah. And I just think that they 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 just yeah just need to make the most of it. And I think they're sort of they've got plans to do that. Um, and I just hope that they can. I know that um, there's been I know that the website, for example, British Judo website crashed on numerous occasions with people trying to get on and find out information about judo and about where the nearest club is. Um, so that's great news. And I just hope that we see a rise in in sort of new people um, trying out the sport of judo and then hopefully sticking with it because they see what a great sport it is. Yeah, um, yeah so that's, that's what I hope comes from it. Because we really need the participation, don't we? Because I think in France they've got something like half a million judo players. I think we've got, I don't know, um, something like 20,000 in, in Britain, isn't it? It's, it's tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands anyway. Yeah, it's, it's completely different to countries like Japan and France. Um, and that's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be that next year we've got the same amount of participation numbers as France. That's not possible. But if we can make a small difference now, and then hopefully we can, we can keep making small differences each year, then you never know what, what it could be like in 12 years' time. Absolutely. So speaking of PR and promoting judo, what do you think about Ashley McKenzie on Big Brother? <laughs> well, um, I haven't actually got to watch much of it because obviously I've just been quite busy myself. But um, I think obviously it's, it's as long as he does a good job, which I think he's, he seems to be doing so so far, then um, it, it's great for sport judo because it's sort of getting sort of introducing judo to a lot of people that have never even heard of it before. Um, but it, it's something that I, I would never do. I would never go on Big Brother. But, um, yeah, wishing the best. <laughs> yeah, not, not your style. No, not really my style. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just hope he's enjoying himself and hope he does well. Yeah, me too. Um, so, the final thing to ask you about is the political controversy, if you want to talk about it, with uh, Denzine White and his comments right in the middle of the Olympics. And I think it was um, Winston Gordon that bit back really quickly, and he performed very well as well. And I think he was the one that commented back straight away. But what, what was your take on it? Because he had to hand you a medal after saying that, didn't he? That was... Yeah, um, I think, like, we obviously all saw the sort of comments that were written in the newspaper, which supposedly he said, um, and I think I speak on behalf of the whole team, we were just really, really disappointed with it, especially that half the team still, still had to fight. Um, I read that the day before I fought and thought, 
but that's obviously not it's not good to be losing stuff like that when you're trying to prepare for the Olympic Games. So I think the timing was absolutely terrible, but um, also yeah, just really really disappointed. Yeah, um, and yeah, he, he didn't pass me. He didn't pass me my medal, but he handed me my flowers. That's right. And yeah. Yeah. So was that an awkward moment? Um. Yeah, it was a little bit awkward because obviously he sort of said not very nice stuff about me and my team. Yeah. So yeah, it was a bit awkward. Um. I sort of just took the flowers and and left it at that. My personal point of view was uh, I felt it was a bit the timing was really awkward as well because Ewan had just fought, hadn't he? And he like broke the nation's heart, didn't he? With uh, even my neighbour came in and went, "Oh, that that Ewan guy," and he did a, such an amazing job of um, what do I want to say? I don't want to say repping because it's an American word, but of of showing what judo is all about. All this, all the you know, the sportsmanship and everything was in his um, in his interview at the end. He did a really good jo- job. And then Denzine came out, and I felt that, you know, because he was based in Edinburgh, the timing was almost partly directed at Ewan. And, and he, given that he's your boyfriend, that must have been even more awkward, if that was the case. That was just my reading of it. But Yeah, no, I think um, you can sort of read into what you want, but that is, that's probably what I thought as well, that it was sort of directed at the likes of him and maybe some of the other scratch face players. And, yeah, that's everyone who knows Ewan knows that, He's the hardest trainer ever and has given absolutely everything to try and fulfil his dream of, of getting an Olympic medal and becoming an Olympic champion. And anyone that knows Judo also knows that Judo is not that simple. And as we saw from the Olympics, yeah. that the number one seeds can go out first fight. Yeah. Um, I think it was in 66, he's the Russian guy, number one in the world. Um, yeah, and Colin Oates beat the world lost, champion, didn't he, in the first round? So his yeah, coach must have been going and, nuts. and lost first fight. So, um, yeah, anyone that knows judo and then someone does know judo, um, would understand that. So that just makes it all that bit more disappointing, really. Yeah, very much so. And uh, of course, Ewan's a very, very, very classy player. Probably the classiest we've got, actually. I really like Ewan's judo. Um, okay, well, I hear you're moving up to Scotland. So yeah, is that to more university and to be with you in? Um, yeah, I, I had my university place at Edinburgh Uni, starting a PGDE, but because of a lot of things, I've broke my thumb um, oh. at the Olympics. I've just had surgery, so I'm going to be sort of out of action for about two or three months. Um, and also, because of how things have gone at the minute and sort of everything's just really, really busy, we sort of come to the decision that it'd be best for me to to defer until next year because it's only a one year course and it's really full on. Yeah. So um that's that's what I've done and so I can sort of focus on getting my thumb back as best as possible. Yeah. Um because it was pretty mashed up. Um and yeah, I can just sort of sort everything out a little bit better here. Yeah, well good luck with all that. And that's um it was amazing watching you as well because I was obviously your thumb was sore because I think it was even in the third match you ended up um like dropping after catching it or something and it was um yeah it was already taped up by that stage and I was wincing watching it it looked really sore and Kate Howie was just screaming at you to get up and I thought yeah you're really brave <laughs> it's really good yeah I think some people thought I was being a bit of a drama queen um but <laughs> sort of shown now that I might have been being a drama queen but it was it was pretty mashed up yeah no well yeah if you're fighting with a 
uh, broken thumb, you're allowed to wince a little bit every now and then, I think. <laughs> Shit. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. Okay. Right. Thanks, Fergus. Bye. See Bye. You.